All right, church family, let's uh, take our Bibles, if you uh, would please open them with me to the first gospel. The gospel of Matthew is where we are this morning and where we shall be for the next little bit in the life of our church. Matthew chapter number one. One of the most popular uh, television series in recent days is the Netflix series on the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, simply called The Crown. Uh, my family's been binge-watched it uh, over the past uh, several years, actually quite well done, and uh, has been something that's captivated many, many people in the five seasons that it's run on Netflix. I particularly enjoy the first couple of series when Elizabeth is a very young queen. And one of the themes of the series has involved the very troubled marriage uh, between Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. And the marital stress comes as a result of Philip just not being able to constantly have to live his life in the shadow of the crown. He's a very aggressive personality, a navy man, hard charger, and yet many of the things that he wants out of life he has to suppress because he has one job and one job only. His job is his wife. His job is the crown. He can't speak on his own, can't do really anything without the blessing of his wife, can't make his own way, do what he feels led to do. He's outranked in the kingdom by his own son. If something happens to the queen, he doesn't become king. His little boy does. Everything about his life was to be about her. So for the rest of his life, Philip doesn't walk ahead of his wife. He doesn't walk beside his wife. He lives his life always a step or two behind the queen. He's a man barely seen and almost never heard. You know, there's a biblical character who's a lot like that, and his name is Joseph. When it comes to the Christmas limelight, Joseph is without a doubt the most overlooked of all the Christmas characters. Philip was overshadowed by the crown. Joseph is overshadowed by the manger. And he doesn't always get a lot of respect. In fact, if the question, name a character found in the Christmas story, were to appear on an episode of The Family Feud, I'm pretty sure Joseph's name wouldn't appear near the top of the list. I'm kind of sure that the angels would show up before Joseph on that list, and probably the shepherds would too. But somewhere near the bottom of the survey, just after those guys, most of whom don't even have a name, would probably appear the name of Joseph. And here's the thing, when we turn the pages in the gospel accounts of the Christmas narrative, from the events of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Joseph totally disappears, just disappears without a trace. We never see Joseph, we never hear from Joseph, ever again in the biblical record. He's a, in fact, Joseph is a man who's known more for what he was not than for what he was. Who was Joseph? Well, I can tell you he was not the earthly father 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, I don't know about you, the Spirit just kind of led me this morning to take this morning and give Joseph a little more love, because I think he deserves a little more love. What little bit is said about him in Scripture reveals an overlooked man, but an overlooked man with a very remarkable faith. In fact, Joseph is a man so totally devoted to God, he risked everything in order to do exactly to the letter what the Spirit of God was leading him to do at potentially great cost to himself. Very familiar story here in Matthew chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Let's read it together as we stand in honor of the holy, majestic, authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Are you ready to read the scripture? Would you say amen this morning? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling <clears throat> to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name, say it together with me, please, Jesus. Father, it is in the strong and matchless and precious name of Jesus that we've gathered here today in your presence and around your word, and we ask now that the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts through the pages of the Holy Scriptures, convict us, convince us, draw us into the light of your presence that we might be changed by it and live in a way that glorifies your great name. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, Hillcrest. You may be seated. Let me give you two reasons why Joseph's life is very important. First, his faith, and second, his obedience. Say those two things with me, his faith and his obedience. Again, when you think of models of great faith, Joseph is not necessarily the first name that comes to mind. In fact, he just doesn't get a lot of respect. He's not even listed in the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and yet he well could have been. Because his faith in God and his decision to obey God is remarkable on a number of levels. First of all, would you notice with me that Joseph obeyed in spite of the shock? He obeys God in spite of the shock of what God is asking him to do and in spite of the shock of what God is revealing to him. Joseph is a model because of his quick obedience uh, to the command of God. 
And that's something that you really don't see with the other characters of Christmas, most of whom are highlighted in Luke's gospel. You remember, of course, when given the announcement by the angel that he would father a son, the priest Zechariah, who would be the father of John the Baptist, denied the word of the Lord. This just simply cannot be because of his old age. When she was given the announcement that she would conceive and bear a son, Mary struggled with the word of the Lord and what it would mean for her practically and personally and relationally to be carrying a child in her womb without ever having had sexual relations with a man. She knew what people would be saying in the community there in Nazareth. And so Mary struggles with the word of the Lord. Zechariah denies the very word of the Lord. But with Joseph, there's no evidence of any kind of resistance when he hears the word of the Lord. There's no evidence of struggle. There's no evidence of any debate. There's no argument. Joseph heard the word of the Lord, and he simply and very quickly obeyed the call of God. And you know, the thing about Zechariah and Mary is both of them had direct encounters with the angel of the Lord while they were up, while they were going about their daily business, while they were alert. And it wasn't just any old angel. Zechariah and Mary both heard from like the head angel, the lead angel, the senior angel, the CEO of angelic beings, whose name, of course, was Gabriel. And there was no way to discount that. There was no way to, to, uh, to uh, make it up. It happened, and it happened in a way that was unmistakable for them. But Joseph's situation was different because he gets an, uh, a visit from an anonymous angel who is not named. It may have been Gabriel, but Matthew doesn't go out of his way to tell us that. But whoever it was, it doesn't happen in broad daylight. The Bible says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And the thing about dreams, here's the thing, dreams are risky business. Have you all, I mean, if, if, if the Lord would give me time this morning to tell you all the dreams that people have shared with me wanting to know if that was a word from the Lord. And most of the time I have to tell them, I think it was probably too much ice cream last night before you went to bed. You have to be very careful with dreams. I'll never say that God can't speak through a dream, but I've heard a lot of phony baloney dreams that supposedly came from God. Y'all know what I mean? And so dreams are easily discounted. But Joseph is very moved by this dream. He knows that this dream is different <clears throat> from any other dream that he's ever had. The Bible says when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Like immediately when he woke up, the whole trajectory of his life, the entire thought process of what Joseph had been going through was in that instant changed from the moment he opened his eyes from sleep. And what the angel revealed to him, make no mistake, was a shocking thing indeed. The woman to whom you're engaged is pregnant. And you already, Joseph already knew that. Not of you, of course, and not from any other man. She's conceived by means of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a boy, and you're to name him Jesus. In the Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord is salvation. Our God saves. And why are you to give him that name? For he will save his people from their sins. 
And I'm sure instantly when he heard that, Joseph, of course, being a very faithful Jew, coming from the descendants straight from Abraham himself, I'm sure his mind went right back to Isaiah 7 and verse 14 because that's what's quoted here in this dreamlike revelation. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means, say it out loud, God with us. That's the son Mary's going to bear, Brother Joseph. And I'm going to deposit that son that you've been looking for your entire life. I'm going to deposit that baby boy in your house. Shocking news. And Joseph doesn't argue with God about it. He doesn't debate. He doesn't do a cost-benefit analysis. He doesn't pull out a calculator, none of that stuff. He doesn't argue like Moses. He doesn't debate like Isaiah or Jeremiah. He doesn't hesitate or retreat like Gideon or like Jonah. He simply opens his eyes and he does what the Lord tells him to do. Don't you wish you could obey God always that quickly? And without that debate, Man, so often we hear a hard word from the Lord and we want to shimmy and we want to shake and we want to debate and we want to ponder and we want to pray about it for 14 years. Let me pray about it just a little bit longer. When truth be told, most of the time, don't you really know what the Lord wants you to do? God is not the author of confusion. When God speaks, he speaks with crystal clarity. And you see that in Joseph. No resistance, no hesitancy, no argument. In fact, from the perspective of the Gospels, he's Joseph the silent. Of all that's recorded about Joseph in Scripture, and there's really not that much, but of everything that is said about him, not a single word is uttered from the lips of Joseph in the entire Bible. Not a word. Now, you open the Bible to Luke, Mary's got a whole lot to say. Amen. She's going to process verbally. Can I have an amen from the husbands this morning? She's going to process verbally everything in great detail. Luke devotes paragraphs to the response of Mary. But not Joseph. When God speaks a shocking word to Joseph, Joseph simply says, yes, Lord, in his spirit. And he obeys, very simply, without a word. Joseph obeys in spite of the shock. Secondly, Joseph obeys in spite of his fear. And might make no mistake, it can be a fearful thing to do what God tells you to do, especially when it's not an easy thing to do. <clears throat> Joseph's obedience comes in the midst of an engagement to a woman who was pregnant with a child that was not Joseph's. Now, the child, of course, that Mary was carrying is fathered by God directly. We know that. Fathered through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We call that the virgin conception of Christ, and it's one of the core tenets of the Christian faith. There is no Christian faith apart from a belief in the virgin conception of Jesus. Can I say that again? There is, you have no Christian faith if there is hesitancy in believing in the virgin conception of Christ. The virgin conception of Christ is just as fundamental to our faith as the crucifixion of Christ 
is fundamental to our faith. The crucifixion of Christ means absolutely nothing at all if Jesus is nothing more than a flesh and blood human being. So all of the atoning work of Christ is dependent upon the sinless, perfect conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. The problem was Joseph doesn't know anything about this matter of theology. That whole concept was totally foggy to Joseph. He just assumes when he comes to understand that Mary is carrying a child, he's just assumed that she's an adulteress. He assumes that she's been unfaithful to him. Now, the two of them are not formally married yet. They're still in the period of what the Bible writers call the betrothal or the engagement period. And so understanding kind of Joseph's initial explanation requires a little bit uh, or his understanding requires a little bit of explanation because the process of marriage is a little bit different back then than it is now. Engagement involved a formal agreement that was initiated by the father of the groom who was seeking a wife for his son. Once agreed upon, the engagement lasted for about a year, during which time the couple did not live together, did not have sexual relations with one another. In fact, any sexual activity that occurred during the formal engagement and before the formal marriage was considered adultery, and it was grounds for a separation, which in the Bible is rightly referred to as a divorce. And I know what a lot of people think. Well, the Scripture says Joseph decided to divorce her quietly. Well, it was the same difference because an engagement, while not a formal marriage, was just as good as if they were already married. It required a legal separation in order to dissolve it because that engagement was a social contract that was legally binding on the part of the bride and groom. So you weren't technically married, but the marriage was as good as already done. And that explains why Joseph, until the angel showed up and shed a little light on the matter, that explains why Joseph had determined to follow the requirements of the rabbis and divorce Mary because of what she'd obviously done. He'd assumed that she'd violated the terms of the engagement and thereby brought reproach on his name and on the name of his entire family. And the story that's recorded by the Apostle John in John chapter 8, you remember that story where uh, the crowd drang, uh, drags the woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus and they were getting ready to do what? They were getting ready to stone her and so we know that the law still called for stoning in these kinds of cases. But by this time, that rarely happened in first century culture. Divorce was the preferred option, and that's what Joseph is seeking here. And that's because the Bible says Joseph was what kind of a man? That's right, a just man, a righteous man, which means he's upright in character. Joseph, if you'll remember our study of Deuteronomy, Joseph was a Jeshurun follower of God. In other words, he was a straight arrow. That's what the word means. It means to measure precisely like a rule, upright, straight, and without any blemish in his character. He's faithful to the law of God. So he didn't really feel like he had any option. But even then, Joseph was able to temper that righteousness. Notice how he desired to separate himself from his wife, not with a rock in his hand, but compassionately, tenderly. 
He desired, as the King James Bible says, to put her away how? Quietly, silently. Again, so much to the character of Joseph because you don't hear a word from him. So putting her away silently is very much in line with his character. We call that an out-of-court settlement. And when the law accused Mary, Joseph was merciful. He looked like Jesus, didn't he? He showed mercy rather than judgment, and he refused to put the young woman to shame. So it's easy to understand why the first words out of the angel's mouth, with all that kind of as the backdrop of what's going on behind the scenes between Joseph and Mary and how they'd gotten to where they are at this point in the story, it's not surprising that the first words out of the angel's mouth are what? Joseph, son of David, do not fear. That's right. And don't miss the Joseph, son of David. Y'all here last Sunday, say amen. Remember the genealogy? Say amen. Whether you remember it or not, say amen. <laughs> Joseph's not the son of David. Joseph's the son of a man named Jacob and the grandson of a man named Matan. And yet he's called what here? Son of David. He was in the line of David. Remember that? King David was this Joseph's 25th great-grandfather. Somebody say amen. Ain't nobody like that in my lineage. I wish there were. No, this is Matthew going out of his way again to his Jewish audience to remind them who this child is. He's born into the home of Joseph as a son of David. And legally, he's now in the legal line of David, Jesus is. Mary is a descendant of David by blood from the tribe of Judah. And this is Matthew's way of saying this Jesus has a legal right to the throne of David and he has a blood right to the throne of David. Isn't that good stuff? Say amen this morning. Matthew's wanting us to understand who this young man is, this baby that is to be born. And to this Joseph, son of David, the angel says, do not fear. And he had a lot to potentially fear. Because if he goes through with this, it could be a lot of embarrassment going on, public embarrassment. That's what Mary was very concerned about if you read the birth account in Luke's gospel. She's all concerned about the public shaming that she's going to be exposed to. And no doubt that certainly happened. And Joseph was probably, though we're not told that here, he's probably thinking about the very same thing. People would automatically assume he was marrying an adulteress. It could cost him his social standing, his family standing, might even cost him economically in terms of people diverting their business from him. See, we tend to do that with people that we do business with. I mean, if we think that someone that we potentially might do business with is corrupt morally in some way, we're probably going to find somebody else, a competitor. Because a carpenter's business in a little county seat town like Nazareth depended on building up the goodwill of people over a long period of time. And Joseph had a hint, I'm sure, that he'd be the victim of backstreet gossip, slander, 
that would characterize any small town like Nazareth. My first church was in a small town like Nazareth. And everybody was all up in everybody else's business. People knew where I was, where I was going and coming and all of that stuff. They knew it. And they would surely know it in Nazareth as well. And yet Joseph faces his fear with faith. And amazingly, again, he obeys God quickly. And he does so without so much as a word. Joseph obeys in spite of the shock. Joseph obeys in spite of the fear. He also, thirdly, obeys in spite of the consequences. In spite of the consequences. And let me just say, there are usually consequences to obeying the will of God in some way, shape, or form. Particularly when God leads you to do a hard thing. I was ordained to the gospel ministry 30 years ago this year, 1992. And I can tell you personally, following the will of God for my life has been consequential. I mean, there have been consequences. There have been some immediate consequences in doing that. I had to turn my back on my career. I had to leave my hometown, a place that I'd lived my entire life. I had to turn my back on my family, get in my car together with my wife. We had to leave everything. We had to give away the dog. The dog could not come. So there's consequences with following the Lord that you won't even realize until you say, yes, Lord, and begin the journey. There are immediate consequences, long-term consequences. I mean, for Joseph, the immediate consequence was he had to withhold himself physically from his wife for at least nine months, maybe more. That's what it says here in verses 24 and 25. For man, that's a pretty big deal. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not. That doesn't mean he's come down with dementia. That means he didn't have a sexual relationship with her until she had given birth to a son and as a Jewess would have gone through the rites of ritual purification after the birth of the son. So Joseph takes Mary as his wife, but he holds himself from her for a good while. But then there's a lifetime of consequences because soon after they get married, they have to drop everything, leave Nazareth. He has to put his pregnant wife on a mount of some kind, presumably, and go to his ancestral home in Bethlehem in order to register for the census because the Caesar, Octavian Augustus, had decided to tax the entire Roman Empire. And that was, of course, done uh, to get the birth mother from the city or from Nazareth to the city of David, Bethlehem, where the prophets, namely Micah, said that the Messiah was to be born. Actually, this is one of the great miracles of Christmas that you ought not overlook, that God in his sovereignty led Caesar Augustus to tax the entire Roman Empire, and he did it in order to move two people all of 90 miles so that Scripture could be fulfilled. And then once Jesus was born, the Joseph family of Nazareth had to run for their lives all the way to Egypt because there was this crazy king that wanted to take the child's life. And that was no easy feat. 
The Joseph family did not have a Chrysler Town and Country minivan last time I checked with a leather package. There was no convenient interstate highway between Bethlehem and, and Egypt. There was no Hampton Inn to take a break along the way. There was no Egyptian branch of Joseph Carpenter's shop there in Egypt. He found himself, Joseph did, in a strange land with strange religious practices, with people who spoke a strange language. And don't you know, he probably got there and thought, what in the world have I done? I'm, maybe I missed the will. Have y'all ever done that before? Made a major decision in life? I've done it. Every major move that I've made has been hard in the beginning, including the one that we made here. In fact, now that I've been here nearly 20 years, I can say it, this was the hardest move we ever made because we had a good thing going on where we were. And when I got here, for the better part of a year, I often thought, I, I've, made, I've made a huge mistake. That's homesickness. That's separation anxiety is what that is. And every time we've ever made a move, it's happened all three times. What have I done? Did I mistake the will of the Lord? Is there any way to turn back? There are consequences to saying yes to the will of God. But Joseph, again, doesn't argue with God, doesn't debate with God. He trusted God, and he accepted the consequences, and he does it without so much as a single word. And then once they return to Nazareth, Joseph has the task of raising this child who he knew to be the very son of God. Can you imagine how intimidating that would have been to know that this child is divine that this child was the child that created the very world on which I'm standing. This was the agent of all creation, the one who created the heavens and the earth. But he's not my child by birth. See, that's the thing. Jesus, the Bible says, was the image of the invisible God, but he was not born in the image of the very visible Joseph. And all throughout his young life, as is the case in Scripture, Jesus is not referred to as the son of Joseph. He's consistently referred to as the son of Mary, which in Jewish life almost never happened. Sons were sons of their father. They were not sons of their mothers. That's a very unusual designation in first century Jewish culture. I've often wondered what it must have been like, what ran through Joseph's mind as they sat at home or at the dinner table and he looked at that young boy who bore absolutely no physical resemblance to him whatsoever. None. Everybody's always said, that Whitney Locke, well, she's a brownist now. She looks just like you. And boy, nothing makes me want to poke my chest out they say that about my grandson too, but I don't have time to talk about that. <laughs> right? Nobody ever said that to Joseph. Ever. Because he bore no likeness to his father. And yet Joseph was very much the father in the home of Jesus. Think about that. Of all the people on earth, 
when God determined, as Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time to send forth his son to be born of a woman, it was to the house of Joseph that God decided to place him. God sovereignly and intentionally placed the very son of God not in the home of Caesar, not in the home of the governor of Judea, not in the home of an Egyptian pharaoh, not in the home of a military champion or a business tycoon. He placed the very son of God in the home of a humble carpenter from Nazareth who said very little throughout his life but obeyed God very proudly and loudly with his entire life. And though Joseph is silent in the scriptures, his influence is booming. You know, when Jesus started preaching, how did Jesus refer to God? You remember? He referred to God in a very unusual way. He called him Abba, a diminutive, a very close personal intimate term. It's an Aramaic word which would translate into English more like Papa or Daddy. I'm telling you, you can scour the entirety of the Jewish literature and you'll never one time find a Jew calling God Abba. Never. It's too casual. It's too intimate. It's far too close. And we oftentimes wonder, well, you know, only Jesus in the writings ever called God Abba. Why in the world did he do that? Well, let me ask you this. What do you think Jesus likely called his earthly father, Joseph? I'm pretty sure he didn't call him Joe. Probably called him Abba. And I like to think that part of the reason anyway that Jesus was so quick to call his heavenly father Abba was not just because of what he knew about father, the compassionate God of heaven and earth, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that this is the way Jesus saw his own earthly father. Because every time he looked at Joseph, he saw the character of God in the faithfulness, in the integrity, and in the holiness of his father. I'm here to tell you this morning, the real measure of a man is not determined by his wealth or by his riches, by his business or professional accomplishments. The real measure of a man is determined by what happens at home, fellas. That's how you determine it. By things like faithfulness and love and mercy and gentleness and humility. All of those things that so clearly mark the character of Christ himself. The real measure of a man is reflected first and foremost in that man's love for God, in that man's love for his wife, and in that man's love for his children. And in that respect, Joseph the silent becomes very clearly Joseph the remarkable. One of the great characters, not only of the Christmas story, brothers and sisters, let it be known that Joseph is one of the great spiritual characters of the entire Bible because he's a man that teaches us that what matters most in life is not how the world responds to you, 
What matters most in life is how you respond to God, especially when God shows up out of nowhere and asks of you to do a really hard thing in life. When he calls you to follow him, no matter the cost. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen.